You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Thank you so much, um, Craig, and thank you, Gil, uh, for uh, inviting me, and thank you, all of you, for coming and being here uh, this evening. And um, uh, it's just such a joy to be here in Birmingham and um, uh, to see all of you. So, um, you can hear me okay, that's all all right? Yes, good, okay. Um, so, my, uh, my lecture this evening is called On Having a Soul in a Secular Age. Oh, by the way, there are three handouts. I just kept finding new images I wanted to use. Um, but uh, we'll mainly look at the, the text handout. Um, and then also, uh, okay, there are a couple points where we'll look at the, at the paintings. Okay. So my theme, my topic this evening is a very simple one. I want to talk about what it means to believe in spiritual realities in the modern world. To believe in spiritual realities in the modern world. And when I say spiritual realities, I'm not talking about ghosts or haunted houses or chakras or something. What I mean by spiritual realities is simply things that are real, but which we can't see. Most religions, and certainly Christianity, teach that much of what is most important and most real in the world and in our lives operates on a plane of reality that, at least in any straightforward sense, we can't see. A good example would be the existence of God. As a Christian, I believe that God is real and that God is deeply involved in my life, even though I can't see God. Indeed, the Bible tells us uh, on two different occasions that no one has ever seen God. So when a Christian prays to God, they are acting as if there is a reality beyond or in addition to what they can see with their eyes or feel with their hands. Another example would be what we uh, call providence. Providence is the idea that what unfolds in the world is part of a divine plan. To believe in providence is to believe there's a meaning and purpose to the events of our lives that goes beyond just the endless sequence of cause and effect. So when I met my wife, Bonnie, in college, I later learned that she very nearly took an extra year off to do mission work, and I wouldn't have been in the same class as her, and probably we wouldn't have gotten married, and my kids, I, mean, I don't know, they wouldn't be the kids I have, and uh, my whole life would be different, and so I interpret all that under the guise of providence. I think there was a meaning and a purpose um, that has shaped my life, but I can't see it. So that's another example. The reason I'm interested in spiritual realities, uh, I'm a Christian, I'm a theologian, but um, more specifically, I'm writing a book on the doctrine of sin, especially the theology of original sin, the idea that we're sort of somehow innately uh, corrupted. Uh, So this book is really about what factors have helped make the doctrine of sin less plausible to modern people, to people in the modern world. And I'm trying to sort of recapture for modern audiences what I think is so profound about the Christian idea of sin. But over the course of researching and thinking uh, about that book, one thing I've become convinced of is that sin is ultimately a spiritual reality. You can't just say that sin is sort of selfishness or that it's just breaking rules. It's a condition of the soul. It's real, but it's also not something you can straightforwardly see. So that is where this line of interest began for me. Now, the Bible, you may not be surprised to hear, and here I'm going to look at the first two quotes on the handout, uh, has a lot to say about spiritual realities. 
once you start looking for it, it's amazing how directly the Bible speaks about this theme of things that you can't see, but that are nevertheless real. And indeed, which may turn out to be the most real things of all. So do you remember the definition of faith in Hebrews 11? I bet you do, because it's right in front of you on your handout. Uh, This is the second quote. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And there's the amazing verse in 2 Corinthians 4. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What I'm especially interested in about all this, and what I want to talk about tonight, is the fact that it's actually very hard to believe in spiritual realities in the modern world. A lot of people are able to go through their lives these days without ever thinking about spiritual realities. Realities beyond what they immediately see and hear and think. So I'm just starting my stopwatch so I don't go too long. Or, and this is maybe more to the point um, for a lot of us, uh, even if we do believe in theory in spiritual realities, anyone who's a Christian believes in theory in spiritual realities, we all live in a world that is constantly putting massive pressure on us to understand the reality around us without reference to those spiritual realities. It can be very hard for people to believe in God these days. That I think we know, but my point goes a little further than that. It can also be very hard for religious people to actually live as if their beliefs are true, to actually live as if what really matters in life are the unseen things. Uh, It's very easy to live as a de facto atheist or a de facto materialist for long sections of your day, of your week, indeed your life. Uh, And that's as true in many ways for Christians as non-Christians. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're immune. Now, in a little bit, I'm going to give some examples of what I mean when I say that the modern world puts pressure on belief in spiritual realities. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about how theologians have talked about the challenges of believing in spiritual realities over the history of the Christian church. But before that, I want to tell you about a play that got me thinking about these questions over the past couple of years. The play is called The Family Reunion, and it's a bit of a theme at this point. I promise this is the last of my talks here in Birmingham where I will refer to this um, particular poet, but the play is called The Family Reunion, and it's written by T.S. Eliot uh, in 1939. It's the second of five plays that he wrote in the later part of his career. Eliot, who worked mainly in the first half of the 20th century, is, of course, best known as one of the greatest poets the English language has produced. But he also wrote a number of very wonderful plays. And the one I want to talk about tonight, The Family Reunion, isn't as well known as some of his other plays. So Murder in the Cathedral or The Cocktail Party, both of which I, for some reason, did read at Altamont. Uh, <laughs> Jim. Um, actually, it wasn't with you. But uh, yeah. anyway, they were both big hits in, 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 in their day and, and ha- have had a long life. But um, The Family Reunion, a little bit less so. Anyway, The Family Reunion is the one, though, that has captured my attention recently as a theologian and also as a human being. I think it's actually one of the most profound meditations on what it means to be both a modern person and a religious believer that I've ever come across. So I'm going to tell you about the play. Stick with me, because it's going to be like a theme. We're going to keep going back to this play. So... uh, And you don't have to remember all the details, but hopefully you'll get the gist. So initially, this play appears to be a typical drawing room drama, a play that takes place in one, like a sitting room, and characters come in and they have some kind of conflict. Maybe there's a murder, and it all resolves lots of sort of clever English dialogue kind of thing. And actually, the the 
it, it actually says it's in a drawing room. Um, and so he wants you to think it's a drawing room drama. The events take place over the course of an evening at an English country house, like a, an estate. It's the lady of the house's birthday, and her adult children are all coming home for the weekend to celebrate with her. A family reunion, that's why it's called that. And uh, Lady Amy, as she's called, is especially excited for the arrival of her eldest son, Harry. And Harry, we learn, hasn't been home for a while. Lady Amy's great dream in life is for Harry to come home and take over the house from her as the heir. He spent the last few years keeping it all going in readiness for his return, and it's pretty clear pretty quickly that she's a little bit fixated on her eldest son and her plans for him, and that might be a problem. <laughs> we also learn that Harry's been involved in a tragedy. A few months before, his wife fell off of a ship while they were making a transatlantic crossing and died. So at first, we think that the play will be about maybe about complicated intergenerational family dynamics, you know, his, the psychodrama with his mom. It's a little bit about that, but, uh, or maybe it's about what, did, did Harry murder his wife, possibly? That's, that's raised as, as a question increasingly over the course uh, of the play. Is this, is this about a murder? But those are not what the play is about. When Harry finally arrives, we discover that he's not in a good way. He seems to be having some kind of nervous breakdown. And slowly we get the sense that he's feeling guilty about his wife's death, and indeed, that he may have been the one who pushed her off the boat. And at the very least, he wanted to push her off the boat. <laughs> but a few scenes in, things suddenly take a weird turn. While Harry's talking to one of the other characters, suddenly these three scary figures appear in the corner of the room, and he freaks out. We soon learn that only Harry can see these figures. The woman he's talking to tells him there's nothing there. He can see three figures in the corner of the room weak. The audience can see them, but no one else can see them. Eliot calls these figures the Eumenides, or the Furies. You might have noticed you have a painting of Furies. So if you take out this, this one, and for people who are listening on the recording, this is a, looking at a painting by William Adolphe Bougereau called Orestes Pursued by the Furies. You, you can Google it. That's, what, that's how I found it. Um, so this is, this is a, an image of the, of the Furies. So Orestes in Greek mythology, and especially in the plays of Aeschylus, um, he, uh, he murdered his, uh, his, wife, his mother, rather, uh, Clytemnestra, because she had murdered his father, and Apollo had told him to, and there's a lot of complexities there. But as soon as, even though a god told him to murder his mother, which is, that's the, she's the lady with the uh, knife in her body, um, the, uh, he's immediately pursued by these creatures called the Furies. They're sort of from the underworld, and their, their job is to harry you and, and accuse you uh, of your crime, especially when you've committed a crime against kin. And, this is, and they, they often have snakes involved with them, and this is exactly what they are, and, and he's trying to block them out, but he's not going to succeed. So that's, that's what Elliot is drawing on. These figures, that's, that's who he has in mind, these, these figures who appear in the corner. So at first, we wonder if Harry might be crazy. But then the big bombshell drops. Harry's Aunt Agatha, who's there for the family reunion, she can see them too. In other words, the Furies are real. They aren't just projections of his feelings of guilt and grief. They are actual entities that really are chasing him. It's just that most of the player, characters in the play can't see them. This revelation in the play changes everything. Suddenly we realize that all the rest of the characters are actually people who suffer from a kind of spiritual blindness. 
They are people who live only on the sort of obvious plane, the world of newspapers and taxes and discussion about how reliable the trains are these days, about who gets to inherit the family house. They think that the world they see with their eyes is the whole of reality, and they are wrong. As Harry puts it, this is the sixth quote, I'm sorry, the, the order I've gone all over the place with, so just, I'll just tell you which quote it is. The, the sixth one on the front page of the, of the handout, Harry says, the things I thought were real are shadows, and the real are what I thought were private shadows. He's realizing that whatever he's seeing with these furies is actually the most real thing in the, in the, in the room. And all the other stuff about the family reunion is less real. Okay, I'm going to return to the family reunion in a minute. Before that, I want to do just a little bit of theology. Hope you don't mind. Uh, so if spiritual realities like God and providence and sin are real, then why is it that human beings have a hard time seeing them? The answer to this question takes us into what in theology is called the doctrine of the fall, as in the fall of Adam, the fall of human nature. Uh, traditionally, there's been very wide agreement in Christian theology that human beings have fallen into a condition called sin. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree they were forbidden to eat from in the garden, human nature changed. We became fallen. Augustine describes it like this in his great work, The City of God. He says, human nature in that moment was so vitiated and changed that Adam suffered in his members a rebellion of desire and became bound by the necessity of dying. And what he himself had become as a result of his fault and punishment, as in this happened to him because of his sin, that is subject to sin and death, he reproduced in his offspring. And that is us. So what this doctrine of the fall teaches is that human beings don't just do bad things. We don't just commit particular sins. Though we certainly do that. But we've also received in our nature a kind of infection or disease, a soul sickness, traditionally called original sin, that affects everything that we do in the world. For the purposes of this evening, there's just one dimension of this condition of fallenness that is particularly relevant. This is the fact that fallenness affects not just our desires or our self-control. It also affects our ability to see the world clearly, to see reality as it actually is. Original sin has affected our ability to see reality. To use St. Paul's language, after the fall, human beings became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. That's Romans 1.21. Now we see in a glass dimly and know only in part, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. So originally human beings were made to see God, to know him and love him, to know and love each other as God's creatures. And that is why God gave us the ability to understand the world around us and the ability to love. But after the fall, we can't see God or each other as clearly as before. Our senseless minds uh, were darkened and now we can only see the world as if in a mirror, dimly. Actually, it's, the, the analogy that I think of here is uh, a few years ago, we finally, um, you know, the greatest invention of the last 15 years is the, the or however many years, is the, uh, the, the rear camera in a car. So when you're backing up and you can actually, um, that is the greatest um, invention of the last 15 years. And we finally got a car that had one a few years ago. But the problem with these things, it was quite funny, I noticed this was a problem with, uh, with yours just a minute ago, Gil. Um, the rear camera has a way of getting kind of dirty kind of covered in mud. They're often in the back, sort of near the wheels. And, um, and so whenever I'm actually trying to back out of my driveway, I'm, I'm looking through a mirror dimly. It's just kind of covered in, in, in mud. I can sort of tell there's some bricks. The yellow lines, I, I just follow. Um, I trust the beeping. But actually, the rear camera is, is all covered in, in mud. Basically, that's what the fall did for our ability to see. 
Theologians have a fancy name for this. I've always, you've always got to give one very technical sounding term to, to show that you're legit. Um, theologians have a fancy name for this. We call it the noetic effects of sin, which means the, the effects on the intellect uh, uh, of sin. It's just a technical way of saying that our ability to understand the world around us and to see it clearly is fallen and corrupted and broken. The result of this is that we now have great difficulty perceiving the spiritual realities that surround us and shape us and live within us. The great theologian Athanasius of Alexandria puts it really well in quote three on your sheet. This is a text that was written in the fourth century AD, which I think is amazing. Um, and it shows that the problems I'm talking about tonight about seeing spiritual realities aren't just modern problems. Uh, Athanasius knew about these things in 340 uh, AD. So after the fall, Athanasius tells us, the soul no longer soul saw what a soul should perceive, but carried in every direction, it saw only what affected its senses. What he means is that the soul, our souls, were designed to see God, to see realities like love and the infinite preciousness of other souls. But we no longer see these things very clearly. It's like we have this God-given antenna for perceiving the realities of the spirit, but it's no longer functioning very well. Instead, it only really gets good signals from what's, what affects the senses, from what's right in front of us. The soul only sees horizontal realities rather than vertical ones, to use my, my dad's old language. So under normal circumstances now, we see a world without God, a world without lasting meaning, and without ultimate hope. A world where death is the end, and all you can do is make life as easy and interesting as you can before you die. Because we no longer perceive God easily, we now tend to live as if there is no God at all. I think Elliot is commenting on exactly this problem in the family reunion. I want to look for a minute at one of the longer quotes on the back of your quote sheet. Uh, quote eight. So just to explain, the, the chorus in, the, in this play is made up of all the people who can't really see spiritually. And they kind of comment on their own condition as a group uh, in this sort of slightly eerie but, but really profound way. They sort of speak the truth about their situation all of a sudden as a sort of group, and then they go back to their normal conversation. So that's what's happening here. So just read the first half of, of, of this quote. They're all saying, we, we modern people, we understand the ordinary business of living. We know how to work the machine. We can usually avoid accidents. We are insured against fire, against larceny and illness, against defective plumbing, but not against the act of God. We know various spells and enchantments and minor forms of sorcery against insomnia, lumbago, and the loss of money. But the circle of our understanding is a very restricted, restricted area. It's not hard to relate to what Eliot is describing. But in 2023, I think we might add a few further dynamics to this picture. I think as we make our way through the world, we are constantly being told, let's call them stories, about the nature of reality. Stories about how the world around us works, what it means, what we should do in it. I don't just mean this sort of generally, I mean like really concretely, you and me over the past week, we've all been told things about what matters in life, about how life works, about what we should be paying attention to. And the vast majority of these stories are not about the spiritual realities. I'm just gonna pick two kind of randomly. I could do many, but um, so right now, some of you may have noticed it's tax season. This means thinking about our money. And a lot of what you do when you think about your money in relation to something like tax season is you're thinking about the future. 
the future of your money. Whether you're making enough, whether you're saving enough, what will happen in retirement, what will happen now that you're retired. In the process, we usually get help of some kind. Accountants, financial advisors, some of you may be such people. And these excellent and very necessary people will tell you a particular story about your life. A big part of their job is to try to help you manage your future. When should you retire? At your current savings rate, when, will you, when you retire, will you be able to live off of withdrawals of 4% of your savings indefinitely? How, what about, how's inflation sort of affecting everything right now? How can you change where you keep your money to avoid unnecessary tax bills many years from now? What will your kids need and when? You, know, you all know this. This financial story is not, of course, an untrue story. It's an important story. I'm very grateful for the help I get in thinking all this through. But as a theologian, I am bound to remind you, the story your financial planner tells you is not the only story that can be told about you or about uh, your future. They will not tell you, for example, that you should go today and give away all that you have and you will have treasures in heaven. That doesn't tend to be the story you get from your financial planner. Maybe some very extraordinary ones, I don't know. That's a different story you can tell about money and about what it's for and about God's plans for your future. Likewise, at many points in the history of the Christian church, you know, a lot of this stuff we do it for our children, right? The story in the Christian church at times has been, go, be martyred for your faith, and leave your children to the care of God. God will be with you, and he will be with them. Again, you're unlikely to hear this from your accountant. The thing is, though, that these days, this financial story, which is a perfectly good story within its bounds, sometimes may be one of the only stories you hear about your life and your future in a given week. It's a story that's easy to tell. It's full of common sense. It doesn't involve talking about the fact that there might be furies standing over there in the corner. So on its own terms, in other words, like so many stories we hear, I would call it a fundamentally secular story, not necessarily in a pejorative sense, but just in the sense that it doesn't have reference to spiritual realities. You know something is a secular story when it would be true whether or not God exists. I'm not trying to knock any of this kind of, I'm just trying to explain how a lot of the stories that, that shape us are, are stories that have no frame, no spiritual frame. Another story we hear about our lives is what I think of as the medical story. Hi, Dad. Um, <laughs> Another way, that is, that we make sense of our lives from day to day and week to week is by reflecting on the health of our bodies, how to make our bodies feel better, how to fix them when they're broken, how to keep them from aging so fast. This is a very powerful story. It touches very deep features of our experience. Being sick helped, prevents us from living lives we wish we could be living, the lives we thought we could be living. Often we're talking about pain, very real pain. Uh, so it makes sense that we think a lot about these stories. Twice in the past two years, I have flown to America from England to help my parents in the aftermath of a major illness. What I learned is that when you're truly sick, and some of, the, of us here who might be a little older will probably know more about this than some of us who might be younger, when you are truly sick, the medical story starts to take over almost completely. You spend all your days going to doctor's appointments or recovering from doctor's appointments or picking up medicine at the pharmacy or waiting for doctors or nurses, or going to physiotherapy, or taking your meds, or waiting for the nurse, or getting ready to take your meds, or figuring out which meds are working, which ones are having bad interactions, and which one caused new symptoms that need further meds to manage. <laughs> Very quickly, there's not much bandwidth left for anything else. 
Your whole life becomes the story of your unwell body. And I don't know what else there really is to do in these situations. I fully expect I will do exactly that when the time comes. And I uh, was hugely grateful for the amazing medical care and attention that my parents received. But like the financial story, the medical story is on its own terms a secular one. Again, I mean secular just in the simple sense that it would be true whether or not God exists. Christian believers and non-believers go to the same hospitals, take the same medicines, receive the same diagnoses, and have a lot of the same worries. A little more complicated, however, is the way that the medical story, this is something that happens these days culturally, it's very interesting, there are cool books about this, the way the medical story can be subject to what is called um, domain creep. This is uh, the idea that it starts to expand its field of reference to uh, beyond what, it, what used to be involved. So, for example, there used to be a long debate, I don't know if it's still happening, over whether ADHD diagnoses in some cases are just a way of turning a normal six-year-old boy into a medical, uh, uh, into someone with a medical condition. Uh, there was a big debate a few years ago, likewise, over whether extended feelings of grief over the loss of a loved one should be called a medical disorder or not in the, the DSM, the, the, the Diagnostic Manual for, for um, Psychiatry, instead of grief being extended grief being just a normal part of human life. And it makes a big difference because if, it's, if you can diagnose it, if it's in the, the manual, then you can get insurance and you can, all sorts of things happen once an official diagnosis can happen. So there was a big debate about whether grief that's extended is normal or pathological. It's a debate over what's, what, our lives are, what our lives are. There's also interesting things to say about depression, uh, the great scourge of our era. When depression is described entirely or exclusively as, for example, a chemical imbalance, which there are reasons to think that, there are medicines that work. I spent a lot of time reading really interesting things about this stuff, but when you just reduce it to a, a chemical imbalance, you're now, apparently, the, the smart money is that that's, there's a lot of other factors. There's so many other factors. There's social factors. Your gut matters. Um, your history. Uh, there's just, it's a, depression is an incredibly complicated phenomenon that, um, and is, that has a lot of variation. And it just, you just can't reduce it to the medical story alone. Um, there's a, uh, a theorist who, I, who I've read who couldn't, couldn't be less religious in a lot of ways, but who, she wrote this book about depression. Her name is Anne Kvetovich. And um, she went through all the literature on depression, and she found that the, 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 what captured what her own experience most precisely was, medieval, it was early medieval monastic literature about the demon Acedia. The noonday demon. There was, a, there was a depression was thought to be caused by a demon. That's what she said. That captures my experience uh, much more than what the doctors told me. Not everyone, of course, feels that. But anyway, you see how these questions about who's telling the story affect um, what we're seeing. Uh, is depression something that might also sometimes have, have, have there might be spiritual realities uh, of some kind? Anyway, what I think these examples also show is why the problem of seeing spiritual realities is not solved just by being a Christian, just by being a religious person. Certainly Christians do have resources that help us to resist uh, thinking about the things that happen to us in secular terms. I mean, I think there is no more powerful and specific way of acknowledging spiritual reality over and against all other narratives than prayer. To pray is always to... Um, assume that there is something more. Church itself, at least when functioning rightly, is a kind of weekly dose of resistance uh, against other narratives and a weekly sort of pedagogy in learning to see the world of the spirit. At least I, that's what 
is supposed to be. But who can deny that all but the saints among us often go days and weeks without thinking about these things beyond Sunday? And how could we not, given the pressures we are under? So what are we to do? The answer is to read The Family Reunion by T.S. Eliot. <laughs> so I want to go back to, back to the, the play now. If you look at quote five, this is sort of, we begin to get the key to the play in this quote, um, which actually comes from the chorus, I think. What we have written is not a story of detection, of crime and punishment, but of sin and expiation. We are starting to learn that the play is about the spiritual realities. It's not about the police coming in and arresting the guy for the murder. It's about the state of his soul in light of the murder. That's what that sentence means. So remember, most of the characters in the play think it's a story about, you know, a detective story, basically. Did he push his wife over the side of the boat? But Harry's story is about the unseen realities behind it all. It's actually a story about a curse and how that curse comes to be lifted. That's the word that Eliot uses more than any other. Toward the end of the play, Harry realizes with the help of his aunt Agatha, this is the one who can see the Furies too, he comes to realize that he must flee the Furies no longer. He realizes that they are actually the agents of God, and their role is to send him on a spiritual pilgrimage to find expiation for his sin. It's worth dwelling for a moment on the final quote on the handout, quote nine, which is the ending. So this is the very end of the play. It's sort of a commentary on what's gone before. It's a little bit uh, enigmatic, but I'll try to explain why I think this is my favorite part of the play. These are two characters, Agatha and Mary. And Mary, too, has eventually learned to see, see the spiritual realities. Agatha, a curse is a power not subject to reason. Each curse has its course, its own way of expiation. And Mary says, not in the daytime, in the hither world, this world, the world here, where we know what we are doing, there is not its operation. There is not the curse's operation. But in the nighttime, in the nether world, where the meshes we have woven bind us to each other. And this is the line that will be an epigraph to my book from Mary. A curse is written on the underside of things, behind the smiling mirror and behind the smiling moon. Agatha, this way, the pilgrimage of expiation. Basically, the, the curse is written on the underside of things. That's, that's a statement of what original sin means. That's a very interesting, poetic, cool way of talking about the fact that the world has fallen. So this way, the pilgrimage of expiation. So the knot be unknotted, the cross be uncrossed, the crooked be made straight, and the curse be ended by intercession, by pilgrimage, by those who depart in several directions for their own redemption and that of the departed. May they rest in peace. So here, Eliot is drawing out all these different ways of thinking about the relation between this world and the, spirit, the world of spiritual realities. Daytime versus nighttime. The hither world versus the nether world. The underside of things. The place where the meshes we have woven bind us to each other. I also love that line. I think it captures, so I, I think that love is a spiritual reality. And I think this line explains, you know, when you've, I've been married to someone for almost 18 years now, and over time, I've never gotten a better description of, there's just, there's just, there are these binds, that, these, these ties that bind you to people that you spend time with that don't reduce to just telling your story or the things that happen to you or the fact that you're married and have kids. There are these, 
you're bound in these very complicated ways. And of course, when things go wrong in relationships, we're bound badly. We're bound in bad ways sometimes. Um, the meshes are sometimes dark, you know, in a bad childhood, this kind of thing. But nevertheless, the idea that where, where love really operates, where our relation to others really operates, is actually these are spiritual um, realities. It's a way of uh, that, that captures something about our relations to one another that is uh, not captured by other language. So the spiritual reality of Harry's life in the play The Family Reunion is the deepest reality. It's the most true reality. Before Harry is a son or a brother or a husband or a criminal, Harry is a sinner and a pilgrim. He's a sinner who needs redemption, atonement, expiation. This is his deepest and truest life. There's a wonderful phrase uh, or a term. It's from the philosopher Spinoza, I think. But uh, he says he also, certain things are true under the aspect of eternity, subspecie eternitatis, which uh, basically means in the eyes of God. Things that are true, looking at the world under the eyes of God, from the aspect of eternity. And under the aspect of eternity, Harry's life is he is a, he's a sinner who's been sent on a pilgrimage for expiation. That's the deeper reality. Now, Eliot is very good at drawing these things out, but there are other ways to, to capture. I think Caspar David Friedrich, the painter, was, is doing something very similar to what Eliot is doing 100 years earlier, more than 100 years earlier. In the, the, there, so there are two paintings uh, on, that have been very beautifully printed. Thank you, Fontaine. Um, uh, so the first one, if you look at the, the, the painting, and for anyone reading, this is called The Abbey in the Oakwood by Caspar David Friedrich. I tried to go see it in the National Gallery in Berlin uh, in October, but it was sadly closed. Um, but the internet does have pictures of it. Uh, so this is an extraordinary, what Friedrich often, I think he captured this sense that there are, other, there are other realities. There's a deeper reality. There's a spiritual reality. He did this in his, the way that he used light and horizons. So if you look, if you can make out, it's meant to be dark. This is a ruin of a church in an oak wood, and there are people down there. I think there's a funeral happening. There's a crucifix down under the ruined archway. Um, he often put these crucifixes around. And these people, they're living down in the dark. They're living uh, down in the place where they can't see very well. They're dealing with death, with ruin, with hopelessness, I think. There's a lot of it. It's a, it's a very stark, uh, somewhat hopeless image on the bottom. But what they can't see, but what is real, is this glorious, hopeful light above, in the atmosphere above. And for Friedrich, this is, this is God's eye. God sees a horizon that they don't see. And it's hopeful uh, in contrast to what they see uh, down below. And I think that's the same kind of thing. Harry and the family reunion is starting to see that horizon. If you look at the one on the back, this is Friedrich's Easter morning, which is more subtle. I love this uh, painting. Maybe some of you know it or have seen it. So these are the three women going to the tomb. And they don't realize that Jesus has risen from the dead. But he has. The sun has risen. The third day has happened. And Friedrich conveys their, both their ignorance and the reality of the hope through a very subtle use of light. They're still down in the dusk of the morning. They don't see it yet, but we see it. Friedrich gives us the eyes to see God's view uh, of what they are. In fact, the sun has risen. Uh, so again, I think Friedrich is capturing this sort of spiritual 
vision, what it's like under the aspect of eternity. They don't know it yet, but Jesus is already uh, risen. There are the, yeah, so. Just the last thing before I move to a kind of conclusion. What of those who remain blind at the end of the play, at the end of the family reunion? Uh, I think Eliot is sort of thinks that that's all of us, and he's trying to sort of stimulate us to start thinking uh, about a world beyond. Um, but so the chorus again. Remember, these are the people who are ca- who are, they're, they're they're describing the malaise of of modern secular people, basically. Um, so if we go to the middle of of quote eight, where we stopped before, but the circle of our understanding is a very restricted area. You know, they know about defective plumbing, they know how to be insured against fire, but they don't know what to do with the furies in the corner. Uh, The circle of our understanding is a very restricted area. Except for a limited number of strictly practical purposes, we do not know what we are doing. And here now he draws an imagery. I I read it as being almost like back to a primitive world where you're living on the the heath and you're worried about the the demons beyond. I think that he's sort of trying to capture this sense of of a world suffused with, um, with spiritual realities. But what is happening outside of the circle? What ambush lies beyond the heather and behind the standing stones, beyond the heavy side layer and behind the smiling moon? They're vaguely aware that there's something, and they're afraid, and they're hiding. And what is being done to us? And what are we, and what are we doing? To each and all of these questions, there is no conceivable answer. We have suffered far more than a personal loss. We have lost our way in the dark. They are the people in the Abbey in the Oakwood who haven't yet seen the horizon. So, so what? Uh, what do we take away from this? I guess what all I, what I really want to leave you with after this, I'm hopefully about to get you thinking about these things. I think it, to, to, to problematize the way in which we just assume either that we're seeing everything religiously, um, or that the world is, uh, you know, that, that it's a given that that we should think in, in secular terms about lots of things. Um, uh, so I'm trying to sort of expose some of these things that, that shape us. But um, to leave, what I want to leave you with, leave myself with, are um, a few theological words that I think might help us to see the world the way it really is. Eliot thought that words have enormous amount of power and that the poet has, has an enormous uh, role in the spiritual life of, of and he's, that's what the Four Quartets uh, is, is all about in a lot of ways. So he, uh, there's some words that might help us to look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, as Paul writes, to help us view our lives under the aspect of eternity. I'm sure you can think of more. I just want to look at a couple. One is, uh, I, I used to not be into it, but now I'm very drawn to the word soul. The word soul names a spiritual reality. It's, it's the place where the meshes we've woven bind us to each other. It's souls where that's happening. Do you remember the song, What Have I Done, from Les Miserables? Where he's, uh, uh, Valjean has just been rescued by this bishop. He's stolen from a bishop. He got caught. He got brought back to the bishop. You know the story. And the bishop says... he. Uh, basically forgives him, gives him the candles, and sends him on his way. It's a very, very powerful moment of grace, and it completely undoes Valjean. So he says, yeah, why did I allow that man to touch my soul and teach me love? One word from him, and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I had a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way 
to go. This is Valjean's conversion, and he has this wonderful life of, of, of service and wisdom ahead of him. Uh, but it's, in a way, he to be treated this way, to encounter God and the gracious actions of this saintly man is to realize that he has a soul, that he's infinitely precious, uh, that he matters, that he's known before God. That's what a, he's known before God. That's what the word soul means and captures. And we, we used to know that. A lot of our ideas about the world are based on the idea that people have souls. Human rights are built out of Christian ideas of the soul, historically, in, in various ways, so I'm told. But um, uh, now we sort of have, we still think people are very precious, but we don't know why we think that. And uh, theology tells, tells you why. It's because we have souls. We matter infinitely to a loving God. Another word is curse. I won't go into that because we've already looked at it a little bit, but I think to think of, of your life not just as a mistake, or you being subject to mistakes or bad histories or this kind of thing, but it, it captures a spiritual reality that, that, that you need God to help you with a curse. You can't just fix it yourself or, um, you know, uh, or, or go to, you can't go to therapy to get rid of a, a curse. You need to go to a priest. Um, so uh, another word that I, I, I'm, I'm drawn to uh, that Eliot uses a lot in the play is pilgrimage. Um, and that doesn't have to necessarily mean pilgrimage kind of in a, in a more Catholic sense, but in the sense of the pilgrim's progress in, in John Bunyan. What if your life was a pilgrimage? What if that's actually a word that captures what your life actually is? You are a soul moving from birth through a fallen world towards God. That's what Augustine is always talking about, how we, in drawing on the language of Hebrews, that we are exiles moving through a land that, um, in a way, is ultimately not where we belong. We belong with God. We need to return to our own um, country. And the pilgrimage means it just puts everything in, a God, in God's eyes, all under the aspect. If your life is a pilgrimage, then your, your, your life's meaning is, is under the aspect of eternity. You are moving toward God. And, you know, in a pilgrimage, sometimes, you know, you're given, you're given friends for certain periods or certain different stages, different, you know, you stop at the inn, you keep walking, um, uh, you, sometimes you pray, sometimes you just have to find food, um, and some companions are given for the whole time, you know, this kind of thing. This is a, imagine, what if that were actually the more real word for your life than whatever other words you use? A last word is expiation. Expiation means needing to get rid, well, of, of sin, basically, of, of something that's scouring, uh, washing the soul uh, of something that's wrong with it. So the idea that what is wrong in you and me and what is wrong in the world is at its deepest point accountable to God, not just each other, that when things go wrong, we are accountable to God, and there's an expiation has to take place. Something has, someone has to deal with the problem of our soul sickness, that it's a spiritual problem that requires a spiritual solution. It's a religious problem that requires a religious solution. So those are three words, uh, soul, pilgrimage, and expiation, to, to maybe try to rethink, I mean, just to think about what is, what if, what if those words describe something about your life right now in 2023 that, um, that neither your financial planner nor your, nor your doctor can, can get to? Uh, and what does your life look like under the aspect of eternity? Dear Lord, we um, thank you for um, that we could gather here. Thank you for um, that you are real. Uh, and even if we can't see you with our eyes, we thank you for your presence here, your presence in our lives. We ask that you would give us eyes to see your work, to see the spiritual realities, to see um, each other, uh, to see the, the precious 
souls um, of each person we, we come in contact with and, and give us also eyes to see our own lives as, um, as a pilgrimage and moving uh, towards you with deep purpose. Uh, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.